Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Friday, August 19th. Yet another facet of post-Roe America emerging now is that more people are seeking vasectomies or trying to get their tubes tied, the procedure medically known as tubal ligation. The Washington Post reports that although official data isn't available, OBGYNs across the country say they've seen a rise in the number of requests for the tubal ligation procedure. There's a really informative story in the Washington Post that spotlights a few patient experiences, including the pushback that some people are receiving from doctors when they show up for their initial consultations. Other OBGYNs have been educating people about tubal ligation on social media. And that, of course, is for people who can get pregnant. There are also vasectomies for those who could impregnate. More people are reportedly asking about those, too. So we'll talk now to the author of the Washington Post story, Mina Venkataramanan, Washington Post staff reporter. Hi, Mina. Welcome to WNYC. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. And let's start with the definition. What is tubal ligation? And I suppose this is sort of Anatomy 101. Sure. So tubal sterilization, also known as tubal ligation, is a form of permanent sterilization that involves uh, cutting or what's known as informally tying the fallopian tubes so that they aren't able to be the site of fertilization between sperm and an egg. Uh, One common form of this is the bilateral salpingectomy, which is actually becoming more common in the field and is the complete removal of the fallopian tubes so that they're not there in the first place. You said permanent. This is not reversible in any form? Certain variants of the procedure are reversible, but the bilateral salpingectomy, which is the most common these days, is not reversible because there are no tubes left to even uh, really put back together. But there are forms of the procedure that are technically reversible, but those Uh, procedures to reverse the tubal ligation can be very costly, and doctors often encourage patients to treat the procedure as permanent because it is so difficult to reverse it and the success rate can really vary. You write in your story that even though official data isn't available, OBGYN say they've noticed a spike in the number of requests. Has that increase been spread evenly across the country, if you can tell, Or is it concentrated in states where abortion restrictions have already gone into effect? For my story, I primarily spoke to people in swing states and in states where abortion restrictions have gone into effect or are going into effect. And from what I heard from those doctors, they have anecdotally seen an increase in the number of patients, including Don Bingham in South Carolina, who said she's seen an increase, as well as Pam Parker in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And so these are two states in which abortion has been restricted or is expected to be restricted 
affected severely. And these are areas in which OBGYNs are reporting an increase. But we also have OBGYNs in New York, which is a fairly progressive state when it comes to uh, statewide abortion. And uh, Fran Haydenek and Amy Lasky both practice there. And they've also said they've seen an increase anecdotally in the number of requests. And your story gets into some of the pushback patients are receiving from doctors when they express interest in getting their tubes tied. What has that pushback looked like or sounded like, at least to the folks you spoke to in your reporting? The patients I spoke to have reported facing pushback, especially if they're younger. So if they're in their 20s and they don't already have children, these patients have said it's been pretty hard to be able to get approved for the procedure. And that's because they're often asked questions such as, are you sure you want the procedure? Are you sure you won't regret it or change your mind later? And even what happens if you find the perfect man who wants to have children with you later on? And so these are all questions questions that they've told me they've been asked, and some of them have been denied the procedure entirely because it's really up to a doctor's discretion whether or not they uh, can give this procedure to someone and their personal comfort level with it. Oh, it's ultimately up to the doctor, not the patient? It seems, according to these patients, that their own sense of bodily autonomy is not being respected and that the doctors are the ones who are really evaluating their fitness for the procedure as opposed to their own level of certainty. So while the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recommends that doctors avoid being paternalistic and ultimately affirm the own reproductive autonomy of these patients, it seems that according to my reporting, a lot of these patients are simply saying, well, that's not the case. These doctors have uh, acted in very paternalistic ways. Does the professional organization recommend any kinds of lines of conversation when somebody who's young, you mentioned people in their 20s, come in and ask for this kind of permanent sterilization? I mean, it is a big deal for a relatively young person to make an irreversible decision not to have kids, right? Yes, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists has put together those recommendations, Brian, in terms of emphasizing the permanence of the procedure and discussing with patients other reversible contraceptive options, such as IUDs and birth control pills, and in what they call appropriate cases, even discussing the sterilization of male partners, um, such as vasectomies, as an option with what they call fewer risks and greater efficacy than uh, to sterilization. And in, in addition to this, uh, ACOG, the organization, prov- uh, suggests that doctors also encourage uh, patients to really think about the permanence of the procedure um, and not act in a way that seems to assume what the patient wants. You also, kind of on, on the other side of the physician question, report on some who've taken it upon themselves to educate folks on social media. How are those doctors spreading what kinds of messages and what are they emphasizing? 
The push to educate people on social media has come from both doctors and patients. I'll start with doctors. Um, they have been creating Twitter lists and TikToks and even Google Forms lists of gynecologists who will perform the procedure on people regardless of age and the number of children they have. So Dr. Fran Haydenek in New York actually put that list together. And in addition, she's been creating TikToks, one of which has received around 4.7 million views when I last checked about the procedure. And that came out right after the Supreme Court decision. And Amy Lasky, also in New York, has put together a Twitter thread. In terms of patients, we've seen Reddit pages. So Sarah Salkowski, one of the patients I interviewed, has started a an Ask Me Anything on Reddit where uh, patients can ask questions or prospective questions patients can ask questions about the procedure. So there has been a lot of social media traction around the procedure. There have also been other stories in the news about an increase in the number of patients seeking vasectomies, too. Yours is more about tubal ligation. I, I wonder if childless men seeking vasectomies are getting the same pushback as women seeking tubal ligation. Any impression based on your reporting? Yes. So actually, about two months ago, right after this decision came out, I did report a story on the increase in vasectomies and vasectomy requests that urologists and other physicians were seeing among men and other patients who wanted to get the procedure after the Supreme Court decision. And anecdotally, what I found in that story is that these patients were really not facing much pushback. They said it was a very simple consultation and an office procedure. And and even some of the younger men in their 20s whom I spoke to were just really saying that it was something that, you know, doctors would very briefly ask them about and then just go ahead and perform the office procedure. And so it seems as if there really is some disparity in the ways in which patients seeking tubals are treated compared to patients seeking vasectomies. Does your reporting indicate that the people seeking tubal ligation or vasectomies are more affluent. I can imagine that either procedure might be cost prohibitive for a lot of people. I don't know what's covered by insurance. In terms of insurance coverage, the Affordable Care Act mandates the coverage of tubal sterilizations, but that's not the case for vasectomies. So although the uh, ACA does mandate tubal sterilization coverage, the costs can really vary. And sometimes without insurance, uh, a patient can pay up to $6,000 and vasectomies are only a fraction of that cost, around 600. And so it does seem that costs can be prohibitive according to patients. And one other important thing to note is that if a patient is using Medicaid to cover this procedure, they often have to be, they have to wait at least 30 days from the time of giving informed consent in order to have the procedure. So if they want to have it right after they deliver, they must have already provided consent 30 days before delivery. So that can also be a barrier for some people. And they have to be at least 21 years old if they're using Medicaid. You know, what we're getting on the phones, we're getting a lot of stories of people who some time ago were denied vasectomies or tubal ligations when they first sought to get them. Let's hear a couple of those stories. Joy in Avila Beach, California. You're on WNYC. Hi, Joy. Good morning, Brian. Yes, in my 20s, I was denied a tubal ligation. Repeated requests every month when I went to the clinic for my birth control pills. Please try my tubes. No, no, no. You'll change your mind. 
I'll be 70 in two months, and I'm still very proud to be child-free by choice. What did the health care providers tell you at that time? What was their language, if you recall? Well, it was, you know, it was condescending. It was, it was all women there, so it wasn't, you couldn't really say exactly paternalistic, but it really, it was so infuriating that they knew me better than I knew myself. Joy, thank you very much. Adam and Nyack, you're on WNYC. Hi, Adam. Hi. Uh, I, in my 20s, uh, I've known since I was about 20, 21 years old that I wanted a vasectomy, that I didn't want kids. And every time I moved and saw a new doctor, I would ask about the possibility of getting a vasectomy, and I was always denied. I was told that no doctor would perform a vasectomy on someone under the age of 30 because of uh, uh, liability. Uh, reasons. They didn't want to be sued if I decided five, ten years later that I uh, wanted to have kids. Huh. Interesting. You ever hear that one, Mina, like where a doctor was worried that they would be held liable for doing something that some court might deem irresponsible? In terms of liability, there's no national legal requirement in terms of the age for a tubal sterilization. And uh, my reporting about vasectomies didn't go into legal liability about performing a vasectomy on a young patient. But I'm sure there are stories out there, as the one we just heard, about younger patients also being faced with skepticism and doubt when they are seeking a vasectomy. And some of the doctors I spoke to for my vasectomy story that came out in late June did also mention that they they do have more intense discussions with younger patients who come in for the procedure just to ensure that they're completely sure about it as well. Daniel in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Um, Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, uh, I just wanted to talk about my, my own experience with a vasectomy. Um, uh, I got a vasectomy um, uh, shortly after my, my twins were cleared for um, autism, and I, I felt very content. And, um, and when I went for my initial uh, um, consultation, uh, I was told that I, I would have to wait 30 days to get my vasectomy. And I was also encouraged to talk about it with my wife. And so I talked to my wife about it, um, although she kind of didn't want to talk about it, um, and she was avoiding it. And I eventually asked her how she felt about it um, the the night before the procedure. Um, I need to preface that my my wife had a very difficult time with uh, um, birth control, especially after uh, uh, we started having children. And um, and I was really doing it for her, um, so that um, she could kind of recover and not have to deal with uh-huh. birth control. Um, but do you too? And we're going to run out of time in the segment. But Daniel, did you tell our screener that you're in the process of trying to get your vasectomy reversed? Yeah. So and me- medically, are I'm you finding that possible? Well, I'm now interested in getting a reversal because I, I basically found out that my wife was actually planning to divorce me, and that's why she wasn't talking to me about the, the vasectomy. Um, and now I'm in the process of, of looking into the reversal. Um, and um, and yeah. regardless of the, the complexities of your relationship, whatever they are, what does the doctor say about reversal? Um, 
Yeah, uh, I just feel like, you know, people should really think hard about getting a vasectomy and that you need to do it for yourself, not for somebody else. I'm Daniel, thank, th thank you very much. I'm going to leave it there for time. I appreciate it. One more. Maxine in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC. Hi, Maxine. We have about a minute for you. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for covering this subject. It's a subject very close to my heart. I spent 10 years making a film called To Kill or Not to Kid about deciding whether or not to have children and actually followed a young woman um, compared to a man trying to get a tubal ligation and how much easier it was for the man to get the vasectomy than it was for a young woman. And um, the hormone, I, I love this guy you just had on the, on the radio earlier talking about the hormone issues that women often get, and yet trying to get a sterilization is so hard. Maxine, thank you very much. Does this remind you at all, Mina, about like, you, you know, the stuff that's in the news um, about what trans people go through when they ask for HRT uh, or gender affirming surgeries and are denied, um, you know, that like informed consent is important, but at the end of the day, people need to make their own decisions even if they turn out later to be mistakes in their view? Yes, Brian, I think there's definitely overlap between the two. And uh, a couple of the patients I spoke to for my story actually identify outside the gender binary. One is non-binary, the other is bigender. And both of them did say tubal sterilizations in a way for them were gender affirming procedures. And uh, they did discuss being able to have that autonomy and agency over, you know, removing their fallopian tubes and that being able to affirm their gender identity. And so in some ways, I do think that there is overlap between hormone replacement therapy and other gender affirming procedures, as well as tubal sterilizations. And we do have a caller who I'm not going to have time for on the air, but who says she had a tubal ligation and still got pregnant and then had to have an abortion. Have you ever heard a story like that? That does happen sometimes, according to my reporting. Um, there are, uh, there is a risk. It's a rare phenomenon, but there's a risk of an ectopic pregnancy, and uh, sometimes that does uh, lead to abortion. So uh, there is a low chance, but there is also a 99.5% success rate of tubal sterilizations, according to the doctors I spoke to. Mina Venkataramanan, Washington Post staff reporter, who wrote about people now post row seeking vasectomies and tubal ligation. Thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.